0: Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Julie. Hi, Nancy. Thoughts for the day before we start?
1: I swear to you, it's been a full moon this week.
0: I agree. The calls. I
1: know. Um, You know, years ago when I was in support group, somebody said to me something about when it's a full moon, you know, things kind of go a little crazy. And I laughed it off. I thought that was totally hilarious. And from a professional Side, I can definitely tell you that the 911 calls increase, and personally, I can tell you when a full moon hits, my son would become very erratic too. So now I'm a believer in the full moon theory, whatever yeah. that is. We'll have to
0: see if there actually was a full moon because, boy, I was so busy with crisis calls last week, I I could not get over it—the volume and uh, really just all across the board, everything. So who knows? I don't know. Did you have a lot of calls yourself last week?
1: I did, and I'm not even taking crisis calls of any sort and haven't been active in that side of my work for um, quite a while. So it was quite interesting. A lot of people um, I know are going through some, some tragic times right now, so... It definitely has to be a full moon. We'll have
0: to start researching. Let our yeah. listeners
1: know, yeah, so also, they can be prepared.
0: Yeah. Also, on my end, uh, interesting how I had two or three calls regarding mental health services in Polish, and seeing what's going on in the world. I feel like uh, you see that people, when they really need help, of course, want it in more of their own language. And two out of three said, you know, I speak English, but I just want someone who speaks. The same sure. language as I do sure. and knows my culture and um, boy I get it. That's a, a really important point.
1: Yeah, that's that's tough for them. It's hard to find services in, in different languages. So
0: Yeah and Chicago's pretty good. Chicago really uh, really tries to cover I'm sure who, the urban but here. if
1: you're not urban then it's probably more difficult I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah, makes a call. Something to investigate, definitely. Exactly. Keep
0: another keep Another episode behind <laughs> our door. We need to make a big list. Yeah. So today we have a, a really interesting guest, Dr. Cherie Allen. Dr. Allen is a board-certified mental health pharmacist by training, and once she graduated from pharmacy school, did her residency in the area of mental health. As a result, now for the past 10 years, Cherie works in an outpatient mental health clinic servicing veterans. Dr. Allen also teaches at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine School of Pharmacy in Suwannee, Georgia.
1: Everyone listening by now should be familiar with NAMI. Our next guest is the CEO of NAMI Chicago. NAMI stands for the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Alexa James rose through the ranks of the NAMI Chicago, making them a leading voice to end the stigma and provide outreach where it was once stagnant. This woman has broken down barriers to build community partnerships with the Chicago Police Department, making CPD a leader in crisis intervention response. She has also led her team through strategic planning, putting NAMI Chicago on the map and making them an impactful voice for the once voiceless. I'm humbled to introduce a leader, a mother, and my friend, Alexa James.
0: Hi, Alexa. Hi, Julie. <laughs> Hi, Alexa. Nice Hi. to have
2: you. Oh my God. I'm so happy to be here. It's like a warm blanket being with you two.
1: <laughs> Gosh, I was so excited to have you on. I say that about a lot of guests, but personally I'm excited to have you on because we've been such good friends and I've watched you grow up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been very patient with me. You are a very special human. Oh, and you're uh sweet. I'm glad that you are using your platform to get messages about mental Thank health. You.
0: I paid her to say all that <laughs> <my> stuff. <Yeah. laughs> and I've talked so many, for all these past months, so often about NAMI. It's fun to have another nami uh, NAMIite here, that's yeah. for sure. That um, it's such an important organization. We can't wait for you to talk more about it. Enlighten our listening audience. Yeah, so let's talk about important it. Important organization.
1: Yeah, let's talk about um, what NAMI is and why people should call or go there
2: So NAMI is so interesting. So NAMI, just so our listeners know, is a a national organization with affiliates throughout the country. And every NAMI operates from a very similar mission, which is to reduce the stigma slash discrimination associated with mental illness, to advocate for a more just system, and to make sure that education and resources and support are available for anybody who needs them. And every NAMI operates from a different budget, a different board. And I say all of that to mean that some NAMIs are amazing parents that are volunteers that are answering the phone in their kitchen, you know, historically that are holding support groups and education. And some are um, robust with very significant budgets who are doing like deep programmatic work. We are not historically, like we wouldn't call ourselves like a direct service provider. We're not, you don't come into NAMI and get therapy, but the truth is, and I hope we have some space to talk about this today. When we talk about healing and we talk about like clinical intervention, it's really not just about the one-on-one experience you have with your psychiatrist or your therapist, right? And so we really believe at NAMI Chicago that we're doing healing work by dosing community with consumable information for perspective shifting and behavior shifting so that folks will help seek. Um, And it's all through the experience of those living with mental health conditions or loving somebody with mental health conditions that we
0: inform our policies and our practices. Yeah, because there's no doubt that something like the family, when the family is stronger or the loved ones around the person who's struggling with mental illness uh, and they can gain an understanding and education that, that immediately is a help to this individual
2: hundred percent. I mean, we're very American when we think about the mental health care because with HIPAA and, you know, we don't have to get into that, but like <laughs> there's a lot of ways in which we have restricted an individual who is sick from continuing to contain, uh, engage with their community. Mm-hmm. There's this great story that I was just mentioning before we started that the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health says in his book, and he talks about how he went to Italy, the small town that has like the best mental health, we should all go, obviously, we yeah. should all there, <laughs> um, that has the best mental health care in the world. And he was talking to one of their co-response teams that went out to support a young man who was struggling with schizophrenia. And she said what does it look like in America when you do this? Where do the families sit? And he said, well, HIPAA is really prohibitive for us. Yes. And she couldn't actually understand how somebody's intervention and treatment is possible without the hosting of the family and the community and their support.
1: Yeah. yeah. I feel like families get a bad rap. You know, we always see the homeless people, um, the homeless shelters, things that are portrayed on media with someone who's become dangerous and the family gets a bad rap like if i were their parent or if i were their they should be doing this or why aren't they doing this or you know they feel that that homeless person has no one which i think is is a huge
0: myth huge myth huge myth understanding
2: well right because here's the difference between chronic mental illness is it it uh, uh changes our decision making and instead of leaning towards treatment many times we lean away from it and so a lot of times the choice is not that they don't want to live with their parents; that, that their parents don't want them there it's right. their choice that they don't want to be there yes. um and that's what people really have to understand it's an incredibly alienating disease and and decisions are made based on the
0: brain disease yes yeah and it's the stigma that is you know we try and change that stigma and it is getting better but that's a huge boulder Compared to other illnesses, obviously. Yeah. I call it the heart attack of the brain. Because when I used to teach officers,
1: I used to Mm -hmm. say, when you're responding to someone who has a heart attack, how do you respond? We render aid. Well, it's no different. You're just having a heart attack of the brain instead of the heart.
2: Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, all of that you can dig into. I mean, cardiac disease in of itself, there's actual measures to demonstrate if you have heart failure. We do not have that for mental illness. We do not. Yeah. I mean, the way that we examine the brain, the way that we use genomes, all of it is not as specific or articulate as anything else. And it makes it really difficult to um, get into like the right treatment modality for individuals. Yeah. What are
1: some of the programs that you guys do at NAMI Chicago?
2: Oh, my goodness. Well, um, kind of we say like the vein that runs through NAMI is our helpline. So we are a seven day a week um, helpline where we really are providing support for individuals who are looking for resources or don't know yet what they need. The mental health system is incredibly complicated, as you all know, um, and not super well um, quantified. and so we really act as the broker. What we saw during COVID, which was interesting, is, you know, we answered, we, we talked, uh, we did 36,000 calls wow. for about like 9,000 individuals. And what that told us is a lot of these folks were calling back for support. So we are just doing a lot of support. So we have clinicians that are bilingual, that are supporting people and linking them to care, and then we follow them and we keep and maintain connection. An offshoot of our helpline is what we call clinical support. So we work um, specifically with law enforcement who are discovering folks in community who require, who've had a lot of calls for service, who are very acutely sick. And what we do is we take those individuals and their families and we build a community and help them get into long-term care, housing, et cetera. We support a lot of people in the criminal court system. We don't say justice system because we don't think we're there yet Um, uh, because that has become the the new institutionalization of mental illness is the the jail and prison system. Um, And we do a tremendous amount of training. And when we talk about training, I really talk about it as perspective shifting. So how are we... Um, demonstrating information and knowledge about mental health so it's normalized so everybody walks away feeling like they can be a little bit more vulnerable and they can engage in help-seeking behaviors and be an ally. You know we need to be able to show up for individuals. We also help people who are leaving institutionalized care by providing peer support and transition work um, and we also do a lot of community engagements. So we're in the faith-based community, we're in schools, we're trying to learn from communities what they need and then provide them the resources to create a sustainable network of mental wellness care.
0: And what languages? When you said you have a few languages that you are bilingual uh, answering calls. So
2: on every shift, we have a Spanish speaker. Um, We also have access to a language line, which we rarely use. But that tells me that we are missing a significant population of folks who um, don't feel safe necessarily calling like a very like Americanized system. It's so
0: important to address these cultures with their own if if it can be possible. I mean, it's just when you have this... when you have this situation as it is on a good day, you know, without the language, very tough.
2: Right. Right. And
0: understanding of the cultural, uh, you know, the cultural side.
2: Right. Right. Um, I would say the last program that we have is our policy work. So our policy work has become more robust We are writing legislation. We are working with legislators. I believe strongly that policy is key, but if nothing happens and it just sits there on the books, it's irrelevant. And so we follow our legislation to make sure that it's appropriated correctly. Um, And and furthermore, like really don't have any qualms with being provocative. Um, We want people, we want to have zero tolerance for the system that has not cared for people because of stigma. Um, and we are not voiceless in that space. Um, but I always tell my team, we're going to channel Ruth Bader Ginsburg and we're going to be at the table with people. We're Mm -hmm. not going to alienate them. We're not going to put them down. Um, there's a lot of paral like people are paralyzed when it comes to mental health and they don't know what to do. And so they stay away from it.
0: Yep. That's the truth. They don't know what to do. And so education, it's education and support. It's great.
2: Do you guys have support groups? We have a ton of support groups and through COVID it's like expanded because duh, people wanted virtual support yeah. groups. Are they right? still
0: are they still virtual? Yeah. Now? They're yeah, still virtual. Right.
2: Yeah. And we're starting to do them specific to like issue. Mm -hmm. So we have um, Spanish support groups. We have support groups for families, for individuals. We just started one um, for folks who are undergoing ketamine treatment specifically. Um, We're starting some for younger adults. Um, And then we have education programs too for parents and um, classes like RAP, right, which helps you Mm -hmm. kind of run your recovery action plan um, and use it as a benchmark for when people are feeling pretty low.
1: That's great. Can you break down some of the support groups? So let's say... I'm a parent and I'm I'm looking for help for my child.
2: Well, let me ask you, Julie, when you were are constantly advocating for your child <laughs> and feeling the turbulence of our system, and you have talked to professionals, have you found them to be more supportive and loving to you or other family members who have gone through similar experiences? Other family members. Right.
0: That's where I've gained all of my Insight,
2: and that's really important.
0: I think it's the best medicine. I do Support groups. It's (laughs) it's so um, to say that you. When I've you know Nami Wise as a program director, I also was a support group facilitator, and I would see people would I'd say just try it once, you know, and they'd call and ask questions about what the support groups are, when they are, and so you don't have to register, just show up and. See if you relate, and of course it depends on who else showed up that day or night. Mm-hmm. But try it a few times, and people most of the time feel at least that I'm not alone. I can hear, right. it, you know, it's such a load off that right. that in and of itself right. is the first step. And yeah. you make lifelong friends.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And many and, and, times and, and, there's still there are people that there's absolutely that factor, and they and they're special friends forever because they get it.
2: Right and so think about
0: scaffolding.
2: So if you are the if you are the community of the individual who is unwell, you also need support, right? Cuz you're not going to get it from them, mm-hmm. right? You are the caretaker. And so to build out that network for you is also healing. And the support groups give you this hope. And when we feel hopeless, it's very difficult for us to move. And the peer support piece is huge because to have somebody with liked ex- like similar experiences to you makes it so much easier for you to be understood. And at the end of the day, we all just want to be seen and heard in our struggle and yes. in our joy. Um, it's incredibly cathartic. So if you are feeling, you know, if you are searching for education, if you want to be in a room with somebody who is experiencing something similar, it doesn't have to be the same story. And people sometimes call and say, well, My, it's not that bad, right? Like I don't want to go in there and be like, right? But it's 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 nobody's. It's a judgment-free zone. People are just grateful that there is this shared space, and and that's how Nami's began. Yeah, because you know we called it not the casserole illness. Nobody was like, when your kiddo was (laughs) hospitalized, nobody was like, here's I'm gonna come over with balloons. Versus your kid breaks a leg, so it's a very isolating experience for families, and that's
0: why. Yeah. I mean, it was created. The other thing it's about support groups that I've found is that there are great resources exchanged. Yes. I mean, you can try to know everything, answering these calls, et cetera, but things are changing constantly, especially COVID-wise the past few years, uh, resources are there, they're not there. Um, you have the other members who are going through, like you're saying, somewhat similar of these experiences and they know good books to read, places to go. I mean, Zoom wise you can have people from all over the country listening, which is great, but you need the local for local resources, but you get ideas of how to find those local resources. So it's just another major plus about that. And they don't they're not they're free of cost, right? Right. Right. So that's another plus. Doesn't hurt to yeah. try. <clears throat> Trying to find doctors
1: or even learning about medications and I mean I learned so much from the NAMI programs and then obviously you know Nancy, I went back and and taught for a while. Yeah.
0: That's how Julie and I know each other. She I brought her to be a speaker when I was speaking at schools and um different townships. We went to do a lot of that work together. It was part of the part of the beginning. How does it go? Darkness. Ending the silence. Ending the silence. <laughs> Close.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Close. Sorry. It's been a long time. Yeah, that was a great program in yeah. itself about um
0: That was the beginning of our dog and pony show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, look where you've come. And here we are and now. Here you are. <laughs> you guys need like a show show. <laughs> like a camera following you around. Oh, that would be scary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so getting back to um programming mm-hmm. and, and legislation and so legislation. Let's let's touch on that for a little bit. Legislation is a is a tough one, as we know is it just specific to Illinois what are some specific things you're working on
2: yeah cool so for illinois we worked for the uh, last several years on a campus mental health bill that chris welch started champion for us and now representative ford has basically what it's saying is all pu- in illinois it's, uh, public universities need to facilitate a mental health program on campus. So just to back up for a second, when you are experiencing a mental health issue on campus, which by the way, is the prime years yeah. Yeah. where people Cor- get sick correct. Um, on campus or community college, whatever, there is a pretty significant wall between you and your parents. So if you become symptomatic, the school's not going to call your parents. And oftentimes what we see is kids end up getting kicked out of school yep. because maybe they're, they're behavioral and it's misunderstood or they miss so many classes or they take a leave and they don't let them reintegrate. Mm-hmm. So we noticed that th- this trend and we thought, what do we do to support it? So this legislation includes peer support on campus. You know, listen, like... You're not going to walk into my dorm as a as an ACT team, you know, right? So how do we modify this for um, students? Um, increased clinicians on campus, um, technical support, and a, a metric system. Is this improving the wellness of youth on campus? And. Um, what are we doing around like intakes? So do people understand on campus where their resources are? Is it normalized? So education. So the legislation passed. yay, it was great, but then there was nothing appropriated to it. So these universities that were like this is so great, they started kind of fundraising on their own to do it. Wow. We're pretty close to I think um, getting 19 million dollars appropriated for wow. it. Wow,
1: that's great for wow. these universities.
2: But what was amazing to see is the leadership of these smaller universities in Illinois who were. Like we need to do this and that's right. Um, And then we do a lot of work in the forensic space. So there's a lot of people who are arrested, who have serious mental illness, and maybe what they did was criminal. um, But we know that the best place for somebody with a mental illness is not locked up, isolated. (laughs) And so we are working to expand state hospitalization beds and other things so that people can have better access to quality of care. But we also know that this is a Band-Aid. Um, and that there needs to be a different system in place so that doesn't feel like – we have clients that say, I'm more comfortable with the police officer responding to me than a social worker, and we have to, like, break that. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's an interesting fact. Although, luckily for you, a lot of our officers are trained. mm
2: mm-hmm.
0: Which makes a big difference. Why don't you talk a little bit about that to the listening audience? CIT training, defining what that is. Sure. So important.
2: It's so important. So the crisis intervention team training started in Memphis in the late 80s um, after somebody with a mental illness was shot and killed by police. Um, You know, we have to remember that the underlying thing that isn't talked a lot about with CIT is that they are typically people of color. And that has to be, you know, kind of a, a bigger conversation here. But listen, what was going on in the 80s? What was going on in the 70s, the 2000s, is we have completely decapitated any mental health investment. And so we have put it all on law enforcement to respond to. We, In many ways, we've criminalized. We've thought of mental illness to be a public safety issue, mm-hmm. which is why it's only the mental health con- only condition that has involuntary treatment implications, yes. right? So we've really married this. So so what, what... The amazing fine men and women of many police departments throughout the country. Chicago started about 2004 was really engage in um, experiential learning, evidence based practice to understand mental illness, to understand what people need when they're in a psychiatric crisis, and respond accordingly. In Chicago, they've had over you know like 5,000 officers go through this. They're really getting to a benchmark that the mayor and the superintendent want to get to. Um, but but the, here's the issue. <laughs> Divert to what? <laughs> if 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 police yeah. are doing forty five minutes worth of de-escalation, which is what OAMC tells us, yes. is and then they take them to a hospital and they're back out an hour later, no one is better, and everyone is traumatized. The emergency departments also are not the best place for somebody in a crisis. No. Could you imagine being suicidal and then a gunshot victim comes in next to you, right. And, there's, yeah. right? and so there's there's part of that. So part of what NAMI's doing with our clinical support program is as soon as that person is identified, we then case manage them through. We can safety plan, we can bring them to a living room, we can give them a phone, we, we will work with the emergency departments to almost like pull in a favor to keep folks to be evaluated. Um, that's a kind of like brokerage that needs to happen. But but what's interesting about CIT is that – and now it's international – is that it really calls on a community partner. This is a team. So
0: and, crucial.
2: It's so crucial that you have to have a – you know, community partner, treatment provider, et cetera. Um, the police that go through this training are marvelous humans who really just want more tools and want to do this right. Um, but when we feel powerless over a situation, sometimes we behave in ways that feel unsteady. NAMI always participates in the CIT section. NAMI Chicago teaches 20 of the 40 hours, but we bring in people with lived experience mm-hmm. to share. Um, and that's, you really see the police officers like lean in on those Tuesdays. There's nothing like those stories. There's hearing, nothing like those stories.
0: first first hand stories so well, it's yeah.
2: a it's a great program it's 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 a program it is not It should not be the crisis system 911 should not be the central intake for the mental health crises um and I think that the conversations in at least the city of Chicago and other parts of the country certainly are nine one diversion. I've sat in OAMC a million times and I've heard these calls and I'm that's like, the nine one one center for
1: for everyone listening who doesn't know. That's our central nine one one center in the city of Chicago. And you listen to these
2: calls and you're like, Oh my god, I could have diverted that over the phone, it's a panic attack. But but the liability and the fear of like we gotta dispatch somebody And also
0: the the lack of education in that area of what to do. I mean, you know, if everyone could receive this training on every level in the whole country, it yeah. would make such a difference. It really would take down Arrows. violence. It would take down a lot mm-hmm. of... The, the de-escalation of this would make a huge change.
2: Divorces would change, I think. I always I was <laughs> mis- joking. I was like, my ex-husband should come to this <laughs> training about active listening. But right, I mean, it's... it's, And I, I say this, I'm a clinician. I'm not a rocket scientist. This is about... This is about understanding where people are coming from, being well enough to have empathy. That's when our CIT changed. I was running one morning years ago, 2016, and I was working on some police stuff. And so police were on my brain. And I'm running in the 20th district, which for those of you who don't know, it's like the north side of Chicago. And um, it's very dark. It's 5 in the morning. And I see police tape and a squad car. So in the dark, I, white woman, walk up to the police car. I'm like, can I run through here? Totally, like, ignoring my white privilege, right? And they're like, yeah, go ahead, ma'am. You're fine. And I'm like, okay. So I, like, run through, don't know what's going on, do my loop, come back, the sun's coming up, people are going to school, and I see on the sidewalk a man who died by suicide who had clearly jumped. And there's young officers, blue shirts, just surrounding them, waiting for forensics or the, you know, the evidence technicians or whatever to get there and I get I've never seen that before in this space and I get furious at the police how dare they let me run through there right and and then I thought well they don't want to deal with like this woman calling to be like my run was ruined today because you're <laughs> right you were doing your job and then I thought to myself who is debriefing with those kids that are staring at a dead body of somebody who just died of suicide when you know they've been touched by it in some capacity, and that completely changed the way that we trained and engaged with the Chicago Police Department. We changed the way that we teach CIT to include first and foremost the health and wellness of police officers. If they're at a 10, they can't bring somebody else down who's on a 10, Um, and that was really informative for me.
1: Yeah, I will say this um, in defense of law enforcement all over. Part of the issue with dealing with mental health crisis, as you know, is not having the training. And without tools, you can't do anything. It's like asking me to go into a surgeon's office and perform open heart surgery. I've seen it on TV a million times, right? Mm -hmm. But unless you have the training, how could you expect us to do it? It's not that police officers are unempathetic. Totally. We are very empathetic souls. Yeah. We have children, we have families, we genuinely care. It's just not understanding how to handle the situation.
2: 100%. And, and they beat you up know. all the
1: time. But I think that's a misconception that's yeah. out there that yes. the police are, are bad, quote unquote. Um, and I don't think that it's for bad. I think it's just the inexperience of.
0: I, I also think of, and I think I might've mentioned this on another episode, that years ago I was speaking about Nami with Julie, and you were doing. It was a program with all of the police chiefs in the area, more the North Side and you know Chicagoland area. And I have I have a, a background in social work, and felt as though I had a good education of you know everything A to Z, and it was such a different approach because I sat in on the whole thing. That was uh, the first time I ever heard the CIT program. And I was really amazed at how they went into things that we didn't learn in school, you know, at university level of uh, how to de-escalate somebody who's delusional. Get Don't give them eye contact. How do, do you buy into their illusions or tell, tell them this isn't happening? All of these things were different than you just get when you're getting a degree to be a clinician or otherwise. It's a different approach. And... Um, it's genius that this, this curriculum has come to be because it's so necessary.
2: I totally agree. I say that all the time. I have two master's degrees. I never learned about de-escalation, about understanding other people's sensory perception, and how you can exacerbate that or not until I did the police training.
1: Yeah, so for me. people listening, maybe you can go into how CIT how do they how do they get CIT officers? How does that work?
2: Like, how do you become one? No,
1: how do, if I'm, you know, a family member who oh, needs to sure, call, sure, sure. like what, from A to Z, how sure, does it work?
2: Absolutely. So you are experiencing, you, you're you with somebody who's experiencing a crisis and you don't feel that it is safe to put them in your car or take them to the hospital and you need some additional support. You can call 911 and in Chicago, every 911 call taker now and on the fireside too is trained in this and you can request a CIT trained officer. What that does is it it changes their their psych triage box. It changes the questions they're going to start to ask you. So, Mom or Dad, they're going to ask you questions about history of mental illness, access to weapons, medication, all of these things. they're going they can even pull up um, if you've certain uh, if, if you're registered in a certain way, if there's been a history, um and then they dispatch. now, it's we're getting closer to seventy percent of the time having a CIT officer come when you request, but mm-hmm. because, as we know, Chicago's a little bit busy right now. You don't always have one available, um, and they will just treat the situation a bit differently because they have a different skill set. Now, everyone in the Chicago Police Department has had a basic level of mental health awareness training, um, where hopefully they're they're reviewing their policies and procedures around mental health transport. Once that a police officer arrives. Chicago also is piloting a program where they have a clinician now with them in certain districts. They will talk to the individual. They will remove external um, you know, people who are just kind of collateral folks. They will have a conversation. They'll de-escalate and they'll assess at that point, does this person need to be transported to a hospital or would they call NAMI and we would start to case manage, for example. If they are taken to the hospital, they are able to take a person to a hospital of their choosing if their sergeant okays that. If it's outside of their District designated drop off hospital, which is really helpful, um, because emergency department care disrupts treatment plans op- often for people. Right. Um, and then they they drop them off, and that's the end of the the kind of engagement. Chicago has what's called CIT docs, so they're like district officers, and then when they get the report that that happened, they will then go and follow up with the family oh, or the that's individual, great. yeah, to make sure that there's some kind of continuity.
1: But that doesn't always work out in urban areas. You don't have, you know, a plethora of hospitals that you can choose from. You have to go to whatever it is, right?
2: That's right. And, you know, in other parts of the country too, CIT operates in a different way or they have different ways of supporting this. I mean
0: or, or they don't have CIT trained, you know, small towns. All, no, not they, all of them are trained. They don't know what it is right. and they're not they don't have anyone trained. Right. So how but, do you
2: find out if they're trained? So we're trying to do an assessment actually. Um, there the Illinois the Illinois State Training and Standards Board mm-hmm. should have a list of all what of the about municipalities. Of, this is an international
1: podcast. Right. So. <laughs>
2: yeah, no. I mean it's it's very difficult. Here's what I always tell parents who are calling us from outside of Chicago is When you are calm and you have a moment of respite, Mm -hmm. we are going to create a crisis plan together. And one of those is to call your local municipality and say, say how do you manage mental health? This is what's going on with my kiddo. I just want you to be aware. But also, let's not default to the police. Let's, you know, that it is it is nine one nine one. Let's also think about what are the other crisis strategies. How can we coach parents on de escalation? How can we involve the individual? That never happens, right? We always say, can we talk to your kid? Right. You know, what do they want, what do they need? And oftentimes they're like, I just want my mom to do this, that, or the other. Right. So that's really important too. So we can do a lot of that pre-work and whether you're in Chicago or not, you can always utilize our helpline to have those conversations and kind of coach you through what the triage plan would be.
0: Yeah, the other thing yeah. I found, because I was just gonna say that, that a lot of times we tell families to, if if they have, a let's say a kid in the house that really is going through tough stuff and they have constant problems, And they are even thinking, I don't know if I could really call the police. You know, that's a whole nother discussion of saying this is if that's a safe place, that's what you're going to do or that's what you should do. But to let the police department know this is what's going on in our house, like you're saying at a at a moment of, you know, peace and quiet. If there's two seconds of it, this is what's going on. And they even can take note in their computer in certain towns to know, okay, this caller, this family, so that if the call comes through, they already look on the computer in the backgrounds there. But um, the whole other side of it is telling family members and close, you know, people close to the one they're dealing with about calling the police. That it's not, you know, sometimes people say, I cannot picture doing that, especially some callers that are, you know, older senior citizens. When dementia sets Mm -hmm. in, bipolar disorder can set off a violent uh, spouse who you've been married mm-hmm. to for over 50 years, and, you know, that person is thinking, I can't call the police on this, but you have to inform them that, you know, when they call the police, that is a safe space mm-hmm. because hopefully there's a CIT, you know, right. inform them of that whole thing too.
2: Yeah, I mean, wouldn't it be great to have a system of care that was similar to, like, any other chronic illness where, <laughs> yeah. where you didn't just have that as your option, that there was a team of people who are, like... And also catching people before they become so ill that they lose their insight. Um, That's why it's like so important to catch this early. Oftentimes things are like wonky and, and things aren't going well and parents don't have the information or the resources or the resources aren't there. And then we get to a point where we've escalated to the point where we're chronically using a triage system of care, which is hospitalization and first responder intervention. And, you know, it's exhausting for, I mean, could you imagine like the most vulnerable moment of your life? And you have the blue and white lights in front of your house taking your kid. I mean, it's traumatizing. Yeah. In handcuffs. In handcuffs. Like it's just such a painful experience. And here they're
0: they're mentally ill. You know, it's a mental illness. Yeah. It's not like they deserve to be handcuffed, but right. maybe that at that moment right. they're it's a. I, it's yeah, just, it's a mindset uh, shift, yeah. right?
1: Right. So well, each department has protocols in place. You know, it's not necessarily that we want to handcuff someone, but are policies and protocols in mm-hmm. place for the safety of that person and the safety of the officers. And so when you don't know the
0: background of what's you, going on. You don't. Which I mean, most of the time I imagine is the case. I'm mm-hmm.
1: gonna say hundred yeah. percent of the time we get calls, you know, especially in urban urban areas, not necessarily more um what's the word I want? More more country areas um that we we don't know the background because It's more than likely that we have not been there or or met with this person before.
2: Yeah, I mean, we had a case of 1,100 calls for service in a three-month period, and it was somebody who was calling 911 and... Actually, was so delusional that they were saying that there were people shooting at him and stuff. So they kept responding in that capacity and he was getting more and more agitated because in his mind, nobody was helping him. Right. Right. And so we were able to divert that call and get him into treatment and long-term care and he hasn't, there's been no call for service from his address in nine months. So... There's also like making sure that we're partnering smarter because we put a lot on the police to respond to. We put a lot on their plate. And I think it's, a, it's an excuse for all of us to not do more and do better.
1: I agree. The, co- the community support, support is key. And the fact that was the number one question I got when I taught CIT was, okay, well, what happens after the hospital? We all know that hospitals do not keep these people. Unless you petition them in, which we can talk about too, what that looks like. Um, so, what do we do? They, we want to help them, but mm-hmm. we don't know who do we call? Where do we take them? Um, what, what do you do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's so important to have that care coordination. Most seventy percent of the time, when somebody's brought to an emergency department, whether it's police or not. Um, for a mental health condition. They're discharged without a referral or with any type of treatment. So think about it. You break your arm. You yeah. go into the emergency department. They do something to make sure you're not leaving. And then mm-hmm. they schedule for you for surgery and there's right. follow-up, right? It's not like that. They sit with you. Oftentimes you're restrained. You have a security guard with you. The parents aren't allowed in. Folks are agitated. There's blah, 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 blah. And then they'll reassess you in 12 to 15 hours and by that time, of course, people are saying, "No, I'm not suicidal. No, I'm not like <laughs> right. right. Get me out of here." So we lose that connection. So I think that if we do a better job of like maintaining, whether it's staffing and sub- staffing nannies within the emergency department, yeah. I was just going to you know, say we, there's
0: a need right at the yeah. emer- in that emergency room department level, which yeah. we've done before, a long yeah. time ago. We did that,
2: and it's not. It's not. Let's be. Let's have a real conversation mm-hmm. about the fact that there's not investment here because it's not lucrative. Mm-hmm. Psych patients are not lucrative. No. You know, they're not doing MRIs. They're not no. doing all that, like so they're sitting there taking up space and um making their emergency department complicated, especially in an urban situation for nurses and doctors who have zero training in mental health and de-escalation. Right. Which is
1: a whole separate issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and their social working s- staff is Underfunded, undermanned. So imagine a busy urban hospital where you're getting a plethora of patients, back to back to back. How can one or two people handle all of them?
2: Right, right. And you know, for listeners, so you guys understand kind of what this looks like is if somebody goes to the emergency department, all there, and this is pretty. Standard, definitely nationally. I don't know internationally, but all they're doing at that point is assessing your level of care that you need. They're not giving you a diagnosis. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. not a psyche, it's not that kind of psyche valve. They're saying, do you need to be kept in a psychiatric ward or can you leave? That is all, and so and if
0: they're kept, it's really from for five to twelve days at the most. At the
2: most, the most at the most, and sometimes sometimes even less. Uh, Most hospitals with emergency departments don't have psych beds in that same hospital. So now you're sitting there and being billed a private ambulance Mm -hmm. transport, and you know there it's it's a real um, messy. logistically complicated process. Yeah.
0: The one area I've seen real improvement, though, on the other side, is when with, with kids, let's say 18 and younger, you know, high school, that adolescent um, hospitalization, when when somebody is hospitalized and let's say high school, middle school to high school, and they are in that acute stay, they're, you know, suicide attempt, whatever put them in there, and they have that acute stay of I always say five to 12 days. Usually they don't let them out before five, if that's the case. But um, COVID did kind of change everything for a little while because they weren't keeping them as long, but now I think it is back. And, um, And then they are released. They do have sometimes some sort of diagnosis. They've Head of psychiatrists come in, maybe they're put on medication or their medications changed or taken off, whatever the case is. And then they're getting easing back into usually a they step down to a PHP, a partial hospitalization program, day program after the inpatient stay. And then they go back to school. I feel as though the schools are getting better equipped to handle the transition of these students. They have drop in centers, they have. Um, They have counseling, and uh, we've had people on the show. We had someone on the show talking about uh, the education plans that are set up, the IEPs, and they kids are many times getting a little bit better with the stigma. You know, they're they're opening up. They'll get they're looking for the care that there is some kind of transitional on that side after you're out of the hospital. It's scary for the parents. You know, the kid comes out of the hospital, and it's only been 12 days at the most. And you think um, home, that's a little scarier. But schools, other, you know, when we talk about communities, they're trying to make those changes so that, you know, there are more and more kids that are being hospitalized. It's getting to be, you know, the increase Especially with COVID, right? With, oh, yeah. with COVID, but, but mental health issues. There are more kids being hospitalized, certainly, than there were five or ten years ago. And I feel like there are better community programs to understand the mental health side in each of these schools and otherwise. It's getting better. But for the adult problems, it's like what we're saying, it's, it's not there.
2: See, I see it very differently. Really? Yeah. I don't think it's getting better with kids. I think it's getting worse. Really? Yeah. I think that some suburban schools or more well-resourced schools will do a reentry plan and be involved. But I haven't seen that in our public school system. Um, with the amount of social workers that they have and the information sharing. Also, if you're 12 or older, you can sign a consent that says, yeah, I don't that's want true. my school to know. That's true. And a lot can. of the kids don't. I think the step down to PHP is really appropriate. I also think it's a huge resource drain for families and parents. And a lot of insurance doesn't cover that, particularly Medicaid. So, um, and. <laughs> city insurance. So that's a, a significant issue too. I think that the stigma has changed because young people are just like activists, right? Yes. Yeah.
0: Right there. Like when you were talking about the universities and peer support, college kids are like so game to open. start groups mm-hmm. and yeah. sharing. It's I that's a, it. That's an improvement too. Yeah. Like they're, For sure. When you try and improve those universities, those you say, who wants to volunteer to do some peer work and speak on a panel in front of your peers? there are, they'll, they're coming out of the woodwork. It's great.
2: I agree. And I think that we need to treat mental health conditions like the civil rights movement of our time. Um, And that's why we say discrimination and not stigma and like, how do we push the envelope? But kids are more acute because of COVID. Kids are more acute because of social media. The Children's Hospital in Chicago said that they were going from one to two kiddos coming into the emergency department a week, pre-COVID with suicidal ideation, they've one to three a day now. There's not yeah. enough beds for kids. And there's a lot of eating disorders. There's a lot of challenges with autism um, and behavioral issues and developmental issues. And so I think what it tells us is not that that there are environmental factors. Ex- yeah, not that there's right. more people coming and, out
0: of... Right. of uh. You know, out from under to say right. I need help. It's that there's more. I, I agree with yeah, that. Environmental more stressors. In, yeah, that it cause, that are causing the increase.
2: Less resilience, and we pathologize trauma. So we it fits a it fits a mental health diagnosis, and so we do it. And this is not to say don't seek treatment at all. This is not to say that some hospitalizations are life saving for a lot of people, but also let's just get to a point where we can really understand the underlying causes, yes. and. And also maintain symptoms through medication, therapy, connection, um, and this real reduction of self-stigma that I feel safe enough to say, I am so sick, help me, because mm-hmm. that is a connector too. Um, but I am, I am, I think, I mean, the fact that the governor in Illinois just like appointed like a mental health committee for kids, I mean, we're in, we're in some deep trouble with kiddos.
1: Yeah. It, it's interesting when we used to teach at high schools and, and grammar schools, the, mm-hmm. the NAMI programs, how many of the kids would raise their hand? Oh
0: God! It was, right? It was and like we'd be in a high school. That would uh, one once we did a thing where it was like nine periods a day. Yes. A, a couple of hundred kids per period in this big auditorium, and the kids raised their you know question and answer. And raised stood up, raised their hand, talked about themselves, mm. their mother or father, their sister or brother. It was it was really incredible. It was eye opening, but I and they were high school kids. Yes.
1: So I think. Children in itself recognize it. I think it's hard to get the parents wow. to understand what is going on and, and when to intervene mm-hmm. is, is more importantly. Um, as parents, we tend to blow it off and say, oh, it's school stuff, now it's social media, they're under a lot of pressure, now it's hormones because they're a teenager. So what would you advise parents um, who are seeing some signs how, how, do, how should they investigate that further?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, I think it's about how do you create authenticity in your home, how do you talk about feelings in your home, and how do you hold children when they share? You know, one of the things that you just mentioned quickly um, about kids raising their hand and ending the silence and saying this is so amazing, we're so proud. What doesn't happen though on the other side, which scares me, is that the facility, the, the faculty and the admin don't then follow up with kiddo and say, you were so brave today. So they may leave there feeling really scared and vulnerable, oh shoot, oh, oh shoot, um, what did it, you know? Yeah,
0: just to, if, some, if you know, for the listeners, just as an idea though, if schools or if anyone is listening that would be in that position of teaching or schools or counseling, this particular time when we did it was absolutely outstanding because they had the guidance counselors, mm-hmm. like eight of them in the room at each one, and the kids were handed at the end of those, this 45-minute or hour-long um, time period, some, a little paper that said, after this discussion, I am not, you know, three squares <clears throat> to, to check mm. your name. I am not in need of speaking to someone. I may be in need of speaking to someone, so or sorry. I am in need. Mm-hmm. They collected them. They took off. They got these kids, they were watching for certain kids they were concerned about and they had, it was like five days of intense follow-up and it was Really amazing,
2: and that's exactly how it should be. I mean, yeah. I know that we, we really say something. have a clinician in the room. Right. We ask kids to write down their safe adult in the class or in the in the school. So for parents, I think it's I think it's about having authentic conversations about feelings. I think that kids typically won't lean into parents. I think we have to <laughs> lean into kids and understand. So some of the helpful t- tr- tricks that I've used with my children is talking about mental health in every conversation. Mm-hmm. So if we're watching sports with my seven year old who's obsessed, like what did that feel like for the team that lost? You know, just to get him in a space where he's starting to think and, and create empathy. We I have my best conversations with my kids in the car because the direct eye contact, which is so intense when you're sitting at the dinner <laughs> table, isn't there. We talk about what we failed at every day. Um, what did we fail at, right? Like, what did we do? Um, And that took them a while to get there because these kids are such overachievers. So it's really just about being able to show up and be safe and and saying to, you know, mommy's feeling really low today. I'm going to lay down for a little bit and this is what it feels like for me. Um, So I think it's just having an open dialogue. I think what happens is we get so stressed and full ourselves. It's difficult sometimes to notice. Um, And it's really important to maintain engagement with anybody else in somebody's community, engage them with strong people who share the same values and create that um, kind of our family mission statement Um, and and sit down together and do that.
0: (laughs) It's also been advised that if parents, you know, they should definitely Bring up the topic. Don't be afraid to mention the word suicide. Are you feeling suicidal? If you're, I mean, if you see a kid that's really struggling, you know, one of your children, and be ready to listen to what they're saying and respond. In other words, some parents are so fearful of, oh, my God, my kid needs to be hospitalized, you know, and they just can't, they they almost can't accept that there is going to be some serious answer. But if you're going to ask the Mm -hmm. question, really listen and be ready for any answer and to take action and realize the earlier the better. If you see your kid, if you suspect that you have um, someone who is struggling with mental health issues, ask, listen, and be ready to just take action as, as if they had... Uh, any other kind of illness
2: yeah we have this thing on our website at nami where we have like we, we put up like a text exchange between a teenager and her mother one that is not active listening and one that is i think as parents too we don't want our kids to ever be sad no, and so we try, very, to shield, we try to shield them as opposed to being like, this feels really rotten and sit with you in that experience. That is more cathartic yes. than being like, well, what do we do to fix it? And I'm going to beat this boy up for being mean to you. And, you know, we try to go in and solution. It. It's just like this feels really rotten. We, the stress for young people is not going to get better. We have to build resilience so that they can navigate it. Um and not protect, not shield them from information that they as young people can consume. The other thing is when kids ask you questions about mental health or anything, answer the question and don't over answer. Kids are asking exactly what they're ready to consume. And if they have follow-up questions, fine. Like my four-year-old and seven-year-old just asked me about sex the other day. That was fascinating. <laughs> I was like, I need to read a book. I'm not ready for this. That's but, another show. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But um, but yeah, like sometimes we over-explain and mm-hmm. then it, it makes them feel uncomfortable and anxious and mm-hmm. they don't want to revisit that conversation. Keep it simple. Keep it simple.
1: I like that. That's great advice. So moving forward, forward, what, uh, what can we see with NAMI Chicago? Mm. What do you have coming up?
2: Um, <laughs> no, we have a great walk in September and it's free to register and we want to see a lot of bodies just out there showing support. Um, this is really what my dream at NAMI is. What I've discovered in my... 10 years at NAMI, 15 years in the field, is there is really not a standard level of training certification, qualifications for people who have the most tremendous responsibility in the world, which is to help shape people's brains and hearts. Yes. And we know peer support, individuals themselves who have had experiences, are in this space working now, but sometimes they're not honored or professionalized as they should be, we have people in policy who don't understand the clinical needs more than like a mom does or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what we really want to think about at NAMI is what does it look like to create a center of excellence? What would like a residency program look like? at NAMI Chicago to help people who are thinking about, um, going into this very privileged profession. No, we all go into it cause we have our own shit yeah. too, <laughs> right? So like we, and, and we hold them through that journey. So it's, um, it's something that we're thinking a lot about and how do we partner with other organizations to try to facilitate a real best practice, a real center of excellence, almost like a residency program. So people feel like they are totally equipped to manage such a incredible, um, Privilege of a job. So that's what that's what keeps me up at night thinking about that stuff.
1: And if people want to find you, how do they find you?
2: Uh, we're at NamiChicago.org. I am Alexa James. Just at alexa at NAMIChicago.org. Say hi. Um, and our phone number, again, seven days a week is 833 nami Um C-H-I. C-H-I. Okay.
1: Great. Alexa, thank you so much thank for being so here. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. This has been great information.
2: Thank and we you. hope you come back. Always. Thank you, ladies.
1: Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We welcome your input. To contact us or any of our guests, please email us at behindourdoormail.com. That's behindourdoormail.com. And please don't forget to like and share our podcast. Um, leave us a rating. Tell us how we're doing. We really want your feedback, it's important to us.
0: We are so thankful that you are here and listening to us. If you or someone you know is in crisis, struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264. Until next time, please join us for another conversation behind our door. Thanks for listening.